0: Hi, and welcome to the Blue Rose Film Podcast, a show dedicated to celebrating the mystery and transcendence of cinema, and tracing film history through the decades via the films that have meant the most to me. My name is Jonty Cornford, and I'm a writer, editor, composer, music producer, and a lover of films. This week on the podcast, we're going to be exploring the world of Soviet filmmaker Andrei Tarkovsky. Tarkovsky is a monolithic figure in the history of cinema, and it was only going to be a matter of time before we talked about him on this show, so I figured we'd just dive straight in, the science fiction masterpiece that most likely led to his own death, as well as the death of his wife and other crew members. Join me as I dive into Andrei Tarkovsky's Stalker. quick recap of the narrative of Stalker. In the distant future, our unnamed protagonist works as a stalker, someone who guides paying travellers through the Zone, an area in which the normal laws of physics do not apply and remnants of seemingly extraterrestrial activity lie undisturbed amongst its ruins. The Zone is sealed off by the government and shrouded in secrecy, and is said to contain a room at its centre that will grant wishes of its visitors. Without the help of a stalker, people who venture into the zone never return. The stalker's wife begs him not to enter the zone, but he ignores her pleas. And in a bar, he meets his paying companions for the journey, the writer and the professor. The trio first evade the government blockade, making their way into the zone on a railway work car. The stalker attempts to explain to his companions the dangers of the zone, and that the safest, most direct way through it is not always the shortest. The three of them discuss what they will wish for when they reach the room. The writer speaks of a desire to find inspiration, while the professor is less open about his intentions, other than that he hopes to win a Nobel Prize for his scientific analysis on the zone. He also insists on carrying along a small backpack. The stalker insists that he has no motives beyond simply helping people reach the room. The stalker also refers to a previous stalker named Porcupine who had led his brother to his death in the zone, visited the room, come into possession of a large sum of money and shortly afterwards committed suicide. Eventually the three of them reach their destination, a decaying industrial building. A phone rings in a nearby antechamber and the professor uses it to phone a colleague. As the three of them approach the room, the professor reveals that he has brought with him a 20 kiloton bomb and that he intends to destroy the room so that it can no longer be used for selfish reasons. The three of them engage in a verbal standoff. The writer realises that when Porcupine met his goal, despite his conscious motives, the room fulfilled Porcupine's secret desire for wealth rather than bringing back his brother from death. This is what had prompted the guilt-ridden Porcupine to commit suicide. The writer tells them that no one in the whole world is able to know their true desires, and as such, it is impossible to use the room for selfish reasons. The professor gives up on his plan of destroying the room. Instead, he disassembles his bomb and scatters the pieces, and no one attempts to enter the room. The stalker, the writer, and the professor are met back at the bar cafe by the stalker's wife and daughter. After returning home, the stalker tells his wife how humanity has lost its faith and belief needed for both traversing the zone and for living a good life. His wife contemplates her relationship with him in a long monologue delivered directly to the camera. Finally, we see the couple's young, deformed daughter sitting alone in their kitchen reading poetry. As a train passes by, causing the apartment to shake... She appears to use psychokinesis to push three drinking glasses across the table, one of which falls to the floor, breaking. As a teenager deciding to dive into the world of cinema and learn about the great filmmakers of the 20th century, the name of Andrei Tarkovsky was completely unavoidable for me. Everywhere I looked, his name came up as a titan of cinema, a man whose films simply must be seen. The prospect of a science fiction film seemed much more accessible to me as an audience member when compared to long historical epics, so both Solaris and Stalker stood out to me as a good place to start. I went on eBay and bought the Distinction Series Director's Collection containing Stalker, Solaris, The Mirror, Ivan's Childhood, and Andrei Rublev. I began my exploration into Andrei Tarkovsky with Stalker, but it immediately felt inaccessible to me. It was a Russian film, the film changed from colour to black and white to sepia, and there were long stretches of time with little to no dialogue, action, or narrative momentum. If I'm completely honest, I just didn't get it. So much so, that I fell asleep. When I woke up, however, the three men in the film had arrived at the room, and for whatever reason, I was absolutely riveted in my waking moments, and sat glued to the screen until the end of the film. Watching Stalker for the first time as an 18-year-old taught me a valuable lesson about watching films on their own terms, and not approaching films with a presupposed idea of what you want to get out of it. In re-watching this film again in preparation for this podcast, this time on the Criterion Collection Blu-ray, I was reminded of just how much I have changed in the time since seeing Stalker for the first time. Not just as a filmgoer, but as is appropriate given the nature of this film, I was struck by the way in which the passage of time has been anything but linear and consistent, especially over the last two or three years. I am always struck by the warmth and the mysticism at the heart of this film, too. When compared to most science fiction, this is a deeply humanist film, directly contrasting to last week's film The Shining, a film that is almost devoid of any humanity or warmth. Tarkovsky acts as a sort of barometer for a lot of young people interested in film, and Stalker is a very important point in my timeline as a watcher of films. It challenged me in ways that were new and uncomfortable to me, and it actually asked me to think about the physical act of sitting down and watching a film, the audience's relationship with the screen, and the audience's relationship with the voice behind the still images and sounds moving in unison to create the illusion of life on the other side of the screen. Before we dig into this film, let's stop by Soviet Russia and discover a little bit about Andrei Tarkovsky. Tarkovsky was born on April 4, 1932, in Soviet Russia, and studied film at the State Institute of Cinematography. He worked as a proofreader at a printing press for a number of years, but film and poetry were the two things that he felt committed to from a young age. His first feature-length film, Ivan's Childhood, was released in 1962, and was a job that he found due to director Eduard Abelov having to leave the project it won the golden lion award at the venice film festival in 1962 and immediately his profile began to grow as one of the most important filmmakers working in the soviet union his next film 1965's andre rublev is a historical epic about the film's namesake a 15th century russian painter and if that sounds like it makes for impenetrable cinema believe me that's what i initially thought but andre rublev is now one of my favorite tarkovsky films It's regularly breathtaking in its scope and visual language, and unbelievably ambitious in its filmmaking. The sequences with the bell tower, I mean, come on. It was screened once in Soviet Russia in 1966 before the film ran into trouble with the authorities, and wasn't shown again widely until a severely cut version of the film was released in Soviet Russia in 1971. Tarkovsky was forced to make a number of different cuts of the film, which means that there are a number of different versions available to watch today. A version was presented at the 1969 Cannes Film Festival and won the Fipresci Award. It's during this time working on Andrei Rublev that Tarkovsky meets his future wife, Larissa, who was working on Andrei Rublev as a production assistant. He was married to Irina Rauch at the time, but had been living with Larissa since 1965, and in 1970 he divorced Irina and married Larissa. In 1972, he completed work on Solaris, and the film went on to win the Grand Prix Prize at the Cannes Film Festival, as well as being nominated for the Palme d'Or. Almost immediately after that, he began shooting for The Mirror, using a script that he had been working on since about 1967. The film is Tarkovsky's most autobiographical film, and leans heavily on elements and shards from his childhood. Due to a number of reasons, including Soviet authorities labelling Mirror as a third category film, limiting the film's distribution substantially, the film was not a financial success, and Tarkovsky began to think about moving abroad to make films outside of the Soviet Union. And this is where we reach Stalker in the timeline, Tarkovsky's final film to be made in Soviet Russia. Stalker is adapted from Boris and Arkady Strugatsky's science fiction novel, Roadside Picnic. While Tarkovsky said that the similarities with the source novel started and finished with the terms Stalker and The Zone, a large amount of material from the novel is present in the film. The Zone being protected by government forces. The Stalker testing the path ahead by tossing nuts and bolts. The character of Porcupine as a mentor to The Stalker. And the implication of extended amounts of time spent in The Zone leading to abnormalities. The novel specifically states that the zone is a site once visited by extraterrestrials, the title of Roadside Picnic being a metaphor used by one of the characters to describe the nature of the alien's visit to Earth. Tarkovsky initially sent the novel to a friend of his, filmmaker Mikhail Kalatozov, thinking that it was perfect material for him to direct. Kalatozov eventually dropped the project when he ran into troubles attaining the rights to the novel, and so Tarkovsky became interested in expanding upon the themes and mythology of the source and adapting it into a film of his own. While the final writing credit on the film does go to Tarkovsky, both of the Strugatsky brothers also worked on early drafts of the screenplay. They went on to publish these early screenplay drafts, first as a novel printed by text publishers and then again in the Russian publication Science Fiction Almanac in issue 25 in 1981. As alluded to right at the beginning of this episode, the production of Stalker was an absolute nightmare and most likely actually led to the early deaths of a number of participants, including Tarkovsky himself. Tarkovsky had worked with cinematographer Georgie Roeber in his previous film, 1975's The Mirror, and enlisted him to shoot Stalker. They wanted to use abandoned power plants in Estonia and Tallinn, which is largely what contributes to the strangely beautiful locations in the film. But it also meant that the cast and crew were forced to work in some incredibly uncomfortable conditions, as well as posing some serious logistical problems. Nevertheless, they shot the film through to completion but their issues had only just begun. They sent off the footage to a film lab in Moscow to be developed, but when they got it back, it had been ruined. A dark green tint present in almost all of the footage. They had been shooting on a film stock, Kodak 5247, that was, at the time, experimental and foreign to film labs in Moscow. This is a film stock that has had a large number of now classics developed onto Star Wars, Blade Runner, Alien, and last week's film, The Shining, were all shot on Kodak 5247, but labs in Moscow did not yet know how to properly develop it. This led to mistakes in the development at the lab, and, combined with a faulty batch of film, the film was ruined. Months and months of stressful, high-tension production was all for nothing. Another major element that contributed to the stressful first attempt at shooting Stalker was Tarkovsky's wife, Larissa. She demanded to play the role of the Stalker's wife and was confrontational and difficult on set, earning herself the nickname The Empress. While the order of events is difficult to verify, as far as we can tell, cinematographer Roeberg eventually convinced Tarkovsky to cast an actual actress, leading to Elissa Freindlich being cast in the film. Somewhat understandably, Larissa Tarkovsky took this personally, and developed a long-standing hatred of Roeberg. In the fallout of the ruined film, a tough decision had to be made about whether to continue with the project or just to call it a day and move on. They fired a cameraman who was apparently responsible for exposure, but in all likelihood that ruined film was not at all his fault. The production designer was also fired, and these firings continued down the line. On top of cinematographer Roeberg's ongoing feud with Tarkovsky's wife, Tarkovsky himself was also having his own issues with him. The two of them reportedly saw themselves as geniuses in their own right, and in reference to their collaboration on The Mirror, Roeberg has been quoted saying, Andre made a film about himself, and I about my own self. Luckily, it was the same film. This working dynamic continued in those first few months shooting Stalker, with Roeberg saying that he was trying to make his own film simultaneously. As the story goes, Tarkovsky asked Roberg one day on set to replicate an effect he saw in an Ingmar Bergman film, going as far to develop a special studio to achieve the effect. But Roberg couldn't do it the way that Tarkovsky wanted, and he flipped out on him. So when the news came back to Tarkovsky that the entire film he had been working on for months had been ruined, he immediately fired Roberg. There is a 2009 documentary called Roeberg and Tarkovsky, The Reverse Side of Stalker, which details this strained but key relationship in developing and shooting the film, if you're interested in learning more about this. Tarkovsky's diaries have also since been published, and in 1983, he wrote that not only was Roeberg a terrible cinematographer, but he was also a shitty person. However, this clear hatred for Roeberg may not actually have been as intense as this diary entry would initially have us believe as he would also dictate his diary entries to a number of different people, including his wife, Larissa, who, as we've already learned, hated Roeberg. The production studio were losing money on Stalker and were about to pull the plug on it, but they decided to let Tarkovsky try again instead of scrapping the entire project. To replace Roberg, Tarkovsky hired Leonid Kalashnikov, and the following autumn, they began shooting at an abandoned hydroelectric power plant in Estonia. They shot for months, and Tarkovsky looked at the footage, but it sucked. None of the magic he had captured with Roeberg was there, and once again he faced the prospect of abandoning the project. Instead, he fired Koloznikov and decided to shoot the film a third time, this time with Alexander Najinsky as cinematographer. Apparently, the script went through major changes in this period of change and development, and the third version, the version that we have all now seen, is substantially different to the original version that we would have seen had the film not been ruined in development. This time around, the film was shot using a KSN camera, the Soviet version of the Mitchell NC. Just about every shot in the film that isn't a close-up was shot with a Cooke Varitel 20-100mm T3.1 zoom lens, a lens that was as big as an artillery shell and cost the same as a passenger car. As you can probably imagine, the budget on this third go-around-the-sun was greatly diminished in comparison to what the studio had initially provided for the film. This meant that the third and final attempt at shooting the film was constantly running into budgetary problems. The first time around, they had seven to eight tanks and five armoured troop carriers for the sequence when the three men come across the overgrown and disused military equipment. This time around, they only had the funds for three tanks and two armoured troop carriers. Not only that, but they were only given one and a half hours with the tanks instead of the two or three days that they needed to be able to shoot all the coverage and angles that they needed for the scene. Combined with the fact that they needed the tanks to look like they'd been there for 20 years, no disturbance in the grass or the bushland, all dressed to be covered in moss and overgrown grass, and one of the most iconic moments in the film never actually made it to the screen because of pure logistics and lack of resources. In regards to the miserable working conditions that the film placed the cast and crew into, one scene had the crew standing for hours up to their knees in stinking puddles of oil, while effluent discharge upriver from a paper processing plant enveloped the set in a fetid miasma. This went on for months on end. One memorable sequence that, as it turns out, is one of the only shots in the film from the original shoot, involved a river covered in a reddish foam. This was, in fact, the waste of pulp and paper that was dumped into the river from an industrial complex. Large sections of the film involving the three men travelling through the zone were shot at two hydro power plants on the Jagala River near Tallinn, Estonia, as well as Mardu, next to the Iru power plant. Other scenes from the film before the group entered the zone were shot at an old flora chemical factory in the centre of Tallinn, next to the old Rotterman salt storage and electrical plant. Tragically, as a result of this, many crew members would later pass away as a result of working for such a long time in such close proximity to dangerous chemicals. Three of these deaths would be Anatoly Solonitsyn, the actor who portrayed the titular stalker, Tarkovsky's wife, and Tarkovsky himself. Tarkovsky was only 54 when he died, and was shown the final cut of his final film, The Sacrifice, while he was on his deathbed in a hospital in Paris. The sound designer who worked on the film, Vladimir Sharun, was convinced that it was these chemicals that led to Tarkovsky's early death of lung cancer. There is one shot that Sharun speaks of that looks like snow falling in the summer and white foam floating down the river, and that it was in fact some horrible poison to which many of the female crew members developed an allergic reaction on their face. To think that some of the images in the film are only visible to us as viewers because the filmmakers put themselves in direct contact with harmful chemicals and extremely hazardous conditions gives the film an intensely eerie quality. It's almost like what a found footage horror film attempts to do in convincing you that what you are seeing is real, and the dangers on screen really happened. In Stalker, you are literally looking at the conditions that caused numerous deaths amongst the cast and crew. Comparisons have been made with this element of the film to the Chernobyl disaster in 1986. Not only do some of the photos of the Chernobyl area carry some of the same eerie weight as sections of Stalker, but the way in which nature has reclaimed sections of Chernobyl, now known by some as the Zone of Alienation, reflects the way in which the Zone in Stalker has begun to reclaim and transform the landscape and nature. Not to mention the fact that workers whose job it was to enter the Chernobyl disaster area to care for the power plant and other infrastructure would frequently refer to themselves as stalkers. Thematically, Stalker shares connective tissue with Tarkovsky's other science fiction film, Solaris. Solaris is another film that I would love to explore on this show, but to cut a long story short for now, it's Tarkovsky's direct answer to Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, a film that Tarkovsky hated. He felt 2001 to be too cold, too calculated, and too sanitized. As such, Solaris takes on a much more humanist and down-to-earth approach to big science fiction ideas. Stalker follows largely in the same direction as Solaris, using science fiction as a vehicle from which to talk about intensely personal and subjective thematic material. As we've already established, the story of Stalker is incredibly straightforward and simple. One of the qualities of this film that elevates it above narrative simplicities is the editing and the rhythm of the film. It's no great observation that Tarkovsky loves long, unbroken shots. That is just part of his visual signature. But especially here in Stalker, he allows the camera to breathe, to wander, and to let the audience attach to each shot for as long as possible before cutting to the next image. Across two and three-quarter hours, there are only 142 different shots present in the film, making the average shot length of Stalker more than a minute long, and the longest take in the film clocking in at over four minutes. In my experience learning and talking about films, this is where a lot of discussion and analysis of any particular film often comes screeching to a halt. But my follow-up question is always this. What's the point? Why should we care that a film has a bunch of long takes in it? In the case of Stalker, It's all about the rhythm of the film. This is not a science fiction inflected action film intent on propelling you forwards through the narrative with as much efficiency and punctuality as the editing bay will allow. This is a film that asks you to interpret ideas and consider philosophical and ethical ideas and wants you to do so at the very same pace as the characters on screen. We are dictated by the pace of the film, not the other way around. And in the case of Stalker, we are being actively encouraged to let our minds wander. Such large ideas with such big implications are not to be digested as efficiently as possible. Tarkovsky wants us to get lost in the world of the film, and to allow it to put us into a trance, and to allow it the time for its images and ideas to resonate. And if this means that you fall asleep, well frankly, that's okay. When you wake up again, the film will still be there. This is a style of filmmaking, often and aptly called slow cinema, and Paul Schrader writes about it in his highly influential film book, Transcendental Style in Film. It's a book that I highly recommend to anyone interested in the history of filmmaking, because Schrader's philosophy on filmmaking offers a wealth of knowledge and insight into some of the greatest films of the 20th century. But importantly for this exploration of Stalker, Schrader writes about this notion of boredom and the merit that this experience can have in film.
1: Transcendental style is essentially a withholding device. You're going to hold on shots too long. You're not going to cut. You're creating dead time. what happens during dead time? When you are instructed to watch nothing. Now, in real life, you don't watch dead time. De Sica and Umberto D, the famous shot of the maid, striking the match three times. It was no longer about the activity of striking a match. It was about how long you were going to sit and watch. The filmmaker is using the power of cinema itself against itself to get you into a sense that you have to participate. Most movies lean towards you. They lean towards you aggressively with their hands around your throat, trying to grab every section of your attention. These type of films lean away from you, and they use time and, and, as other people would call it, boredom, as a technique. Eventually, if you're smart enough on how you use these techniques, now you're doing something really rare. You're activating the viewer, uh, and once the viewer starts to move on his own, it's so much more powerful. When you use boredom as an aesthetic device, when is it effective and when is it simply boredom? If you consistently withhold and now the viewer is leaning towards you, now you have to, I think, in a certain moment, free them. You know, do something unexpected. And Ida is the tracking shot at the end, you know. In uh, Bresson, it's often just a burst of music, you know. You, know you, you show a movie for an hour and a half, two hours, with no music at all. Then all of a sudden at the end, boom, a big blast of Mozart. What are you gonna do with something that aggressive? And the trick of someone who can use Transcendental Style is to suddenly freeze them. So like the characters in Ozu's films, never show any emotion, and all of a sudden in the end, whammo, comes a big blast of emotion. What are you going to do with it now that he has totally conditioned you not to expect it? Is it going to put you off, or is it going to knock you up a notch? And that's the idea of the decisive action. And once you get that action, and then,
0: then after that, silence. This is the merit and the purpose of the rhythmic qualities of the editing of Stalker. It isn't to draw your attention to the filmmaking. That is likely the last thing that Tarkovsky wanted. Or is it the logistical art of staging such long takes? It's to allow the film to breathe, to allow dead time to build, and to invite the viewer to lean in to the film. To allow your mind time to wander in these moments that you feel the action waning to allow the film to dictate the rhythm and the pace of your thoughts and feelings. It's this attention to the execution of an intended experience for the audience that makes the editing of Stalker so special and exciting. Yes, it is also impressive that the shots hold for so long without cutting, and yes, it is also fun to try and wrap your head around the logistical nightmare each one of these set-piece shots must have caused the cast and crew. But ultimately, it is the effect that this has on the overall rhythm of the film that elevates it above being simply flashy and self-indulgent cinema candy. So as you watch Stalker, whether for the first time or to revisit it, or any other film that uses techniques of slow cinema, instead of rejecting the film or pushing it away from you, lean in. Lean into the film and allow the pace of the film to change how you view it. It's an exercise that we have largely lost in popular film culture today. Whether you want to attribute it to the speed at which the internet has conditioned us to think, or the rise of streaming services as our method of consuming film, or whatever else you might want to attribute it to, our ability to allow the film itself to dictate our experience of seeing the film has largely diminished, being replaced by an inversion of that process. If the film doesn't meet us at the pace or aesthetic that we require from it to entertain us, or it isn't serving our need for hyper-narrative, we can be quick to move on and ignore the film. This is largely why I think I didn't connect with Stalker the first time I saw it. I was expecting, or perhaps even demanding, a science fiction experience with momentum and attention-drawing action, not something that required me to slow down my external experience to match the pace of the film. But in my waking moments in the film's third act, I didn't need to slow the external pace that I was bringing to the film. I was already there. Similar to the practice of meditation or mindfulness, films like Stalker require you to slow down your rate of information transfer and, in today's film culture, slow down your desire for content. If you were to attempt to watch Stalker as simply a piece of content to consume before you watch the next film that you have lined up in your list, you would not be allowing the film to work on its own terms. I do recognise that this can come across as elitist or snobbish, but truly, my intention in talking about a film like Stalker is to encourage anyone listening to this show to let whatever film it is that they are watching speak to you on its own terms. The rate of knots at which we consume media today is totally at odds, not only with the pacing of Stalker, but also at odds with the rate at which Tarkovsky wants you to engage with it. I have dreamt about Stalker, and I think about it regularly something that cannot happen without a deep connection to the thematic material of the film, and cannot come about without a patience and willingness to give oneself up to the rhythm of the film. As a case study into how difficult it can actually be to shoot and produce a feature film, Stalker is fascinating and engaging. But as a piece of art that has challenged my experience with the screen, Stalker is hugely important to me. When compared to another film that is clearly inspired by it, Alex Garland's 2018 sci-fi horror film Annihilation, not only can you see how influential it has been on science fiction cinema over the last 40 years, but you can also see pretty directly how much the pace and rhythm of cinema has changed in that time. As an exploration into the mystical and where that intersects with human ambition and desire, it's a profound meditation that has stood the test of time. We can see its influence today in films like the aforementioned Annihilation, but also in the films of Baila and Lars von Trier. Come and See by Ilim Klimov owes a great debt to Tarkovsky, and even Alex Garland's most recent feature film, the mesmerising and hypnotic folktale nightmare Men, trades in the archetypal themes and meditative pacing popularised by Tarkovsky's films. While the film is today considered to be a Soviet classic, upon its release, the film's reception was mixed. A government group from the State Committee for Cinematography were particularly critical of the film. And on being told that Stalker should be faster and more dynamic, Tarkovsky replied, The film needs to be slower and duller at the start so that the viewers who walked into the wrong theatre have time to leave before the main action starts. The state representative then stated that he was trying to give the point of view of the audience to which Tarkovsky supposedly retorted, I am only interested in the views of two people. One is called Bresson and the other Bergman. Speaking about Tarkovsky, Ingmar Bergman once said, My discovery of Tarkovsky's first film was like a miracle. Suddenly, I found myself standing at the door of a room, the keys of which had until then never been given to me. It was a room I had always wanted to enter and where he was moving freely and fully at ease. I felt encountered and stimulated. Someone was expressing what I had always wanted to say without knowing how. Tarkovsky is for me the greatest. The one who invented a new language, true to the nature of film, as it captures life as a reflection, life as a dream. Tarkovsky's connection with Bergman didn't stop there. In his last film, The Sacrifice, Tarkovsky worked with cinematographer Sven Nykvist, who worked many times with Bergman. Nyqvist apparently complained that Tarkovsky would frequently look through the camera and even direct actors through it, but ultimately stated that choosing to work with Tarkovsky was one of the best choices he ever made in his career. Here are filmmakers Robert Eggers and Ari Aster talking about Bergman and Tarkovsky on the A24 podcast.
2: What about uh, Tarkovsky's influence on Bergman? (coughs) Well... Herkovski's influence on Bergman. I mean, I know that the two loved each other. I wonder if, um, I wonder if seeing Andrei Rublev like did anything. Yeah, I to, mean, uh, f- to inform for- like Bergman's change because Bergman changed so changed much so in the sixties. Like from Through a Glass Darkly, which is also, I guess, while he was location scouting for that film, I, he like he found. Fora which is mm-hmm. you know the island that he spent the rest of his life on. Yeah. I I wonder if like there's some something about Fora that like changed his outlook. He even made these like two documentaries about Fora that plays sort of like a Michael Apted like up up series contribution. Yeah, yeah. Um and so he like became obsessed with this place. Anyway, I, we are probably moving into like obscure territory but well uh, um, but I will like I just like there is a couple like uh, from my understanding he saw Ivan's childhood and that began to get him to uh, try to create cinema as dream in a way I mean not that he hadn't done that before but he felt like that was a key for him and then there's a story about him and Sven Nykvist watching Andrei Rubiov at like 1am with no subtitles just like Oh my god, this is the greatest thing we've ever seen. And I just love that image, you know. But but uh, yeah, okay. And then Tarkovsky kind of abandoned like the style of those two films, which I, I actually I mean, Rublev for me is definitely like the peak. I mean, the yeah. staging of the bell making stuff is just anytime you watch it, you can't believe it. Talk about not having a sophomore slump. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like it's like, holy cow. It's so impressive.
0: Nick Shager wrote in Slant Magazine that the film is an endlessly pliable allegory about human consciousness. It's earned its place in the BFI's 100 Greatest Films of All Time, tied with Shower at number 29. Jeff Dyer for The Guardian described the film as synonymous both with cinema's claims to high art and a test of the viewer's ability to appreciate it as such. On Rotten Tomatoes, the film currently sits at 100% positive, based on 41 reviews. As we wrap up our exploration of Stalker by diving into the time machine, I want to draw your attention to another film that came out in 1979 that makes a very interesting parallel to Stalker. Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now was another film about men venturing into the unknown natural world and being changed by their experience, as well as being one of the most famous and most documented troubled film productions in cinema history. Aside from obviously seeing the film, if you haven't already... I can also highly recommend the documentary film from 1991 called Hearts of Darkness, A Filmmaker's Apocalypse, to learn more about the nightmarish three years of principal photography and post-production, the personal difficulties and strained relationships that threatened to overturn the film, and the numerous controversies that followed. As a double bill with Stalker, Apocalypse Now is a brilliant comparison of how very similar themes and narrative beats can be expressed in totally different ways, based on difference in culture and financial wealth. While both are deep dives into archetypal depictions of masculinity and interrogations of the root elements of the human character and condition, one is a manic and kinetic experience of terror and continued degradation of the human spirit, while the other is a defiantly humanistic piece committed to celebrating the human heart and the mystical. 1979 was a great year for comedy with films like Monty Python's Life of Brian, Being There, starring Peter Sellers, The Jerk, Manhattan, and The Muppets Movie all being released. Mad Max was unleashed into cinemas, and David Cronenberg gave a precursor to what he would birth to the world in the 1980s, with The Brood. A film that I have a soft spot for, the controversial Caligula starring Malcolm McDowell and Helen Mirren was also released in 1979 to immediate unwanted interest from various local authorities. Kramer vs. Kramer would sweep at the 1980 Academy Awards, winning Best Picture as well as Best Actor and Director awards for Dustin Hoffman and Robert Benton. Thanks for listening. Major sources for this episode were Cinema Tyler's YouTube video about Stalker and the Criterion Collection special features. There'll be links to these sources and others in the show notes. You can support this podcast by leaving a review or a like, or even better, just sharing it with a friend. You can get in touch by emailing us at bluerose.filmreview at gmail.com or you can find us on socials and get in touch there don't forget to check out the blog where you can read more pieces by myself about great films and continue the conversation. The link to the blog is also in the show notes down below. I'll see you next time, but until then, don't forget, Gremlins 2 is the greatest sequel of all time and anyone that tells you otherwise isn't worth your time. Take care.